Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Edward Corey. He is the Managing Director at RCS. He'll discuss a little bit about the dynamics of retail leases as far as their negotiations with landlords. It's a part of our ongoing ICSC interview series. In news, one of the nation's largest retailers reveals earnings, but more importantly speaks to inflationary impacts and private label development. And in looking ahead, an off-price grocery retailer continues to expand in the mid-Atlantic. Our podcast this week is brought to you by BAMS. We'll discuss them a little bit later on in the show. So let's get right to our news section. Who else but Kroger leads our show? Lots of potential storylines here from inflationary impacts, fuel impacts, and also what we've heard about supply interruptions for certain high-volume categories. But at least on the bottom line, Kroger continued to come in as expected or better than expected. Analyst expectations coming into the call were for $1.28 per share for this first quarter that ended towards the end of May. Kroger actually posted adjusted earnings of $1.45 per share. And from a profit perspective, they've been one of the more consistent retailers out there, never really having an insanely great quarter in relation to analyst expectations, but also never really having too much of a down quarter either as far as the bottom line is concerned. But regarding the sales numbers, overall sales rose from $41.3 billion to $44.6 billion. So it's a pretty large jump, a jump of around 7 to 8%. Operating profit as a percentage of sales also rose from 2% to 3.4%. And that was helped along by reduced SG&A expenses there. Fuel accounted for nearly half of the revenue increase, though, when you look at Kroger as a whole because you see these price hikes over the last 12 months. So that's helping out a little bit in terms of revenue, also a little bit in terms of margin, simply because of the overwhelming price hikes we've seen in gasoline throughout the country. We did see Kroger's cost of goods sold rise during this last quarter, but more than offset by the decrease in operating general and administrative expenses. Now, as far as Those in-store sales are concerned. Identical sales rose by 4.1%, excluding those impacts that we talked about from fuel price increases. So 4.1% year over year, that's not necessarily enough to keep up with food inflation or at least those macro level food inflation numbers that we've seen. But it's a pretty decent indication that they're at least keeping up with share of wallet as you see spending be curtailed in other retail areas. On recent shows, we've talked, for example, about furniture, retail, and how we've seen spending roll back there a little bit. Here in grocery, you continue to see identical sales increase. This is on top of a 4.1% decrease one year ago in the first quarter. Now, a good portion of these identical sales increases was fueled by growth in fresh. The fresh categories continued to increase for Kroger. Comp sales for that category rose by 5.2%. And it seems like this is a broad trend. Albertsons and Walmart lately also seeing continued sales increases and fresh. And some of this can no doubt be attributed to protein inflation, where in meat and dairy in particular, you're seeing prices rise. 
But retailers are still making the argument that habits have developed during the pandemic regarding more home preparation of meals, and those habits appear to have stuck around to some extent. This is something leadership talked about a little bit later on in the call during the Q&A. Also, Kroger's private label sales grew by 6.3%, so outpacing other products and outpacing those name brand products, if you will. So therefore, you've got a higher percentage of overall sales for Kroger coming from private label products. 92% of households shopping at a Kroger store during the first quarter purchased at least one private label brand during the course of the quarter. And again, this is somewhat of a test of what you want to see from the current climate and what you want to see from these numbers. You could come away from this thinking that this is a circumstance where customers are becoming more cost conscious, so they're trading down, they're operating more in private label products. Or maybe you could look at this and see that Kroger is just doing a great job in private label development and marketing. Now, the real answer, as so often is the case, probably lies somewhere between the two. Kroger's probably doing a very good job in terms of private label development and marketing, just like Albertsons has been doing, and also people becoming a little bit more cost conscious. But the numbers in terms of comp sales, in terms of those fresh sales and private label sales going up, allowed Kroger to boost their full year forecast to reflect comps increasing during the course of the year by 25 to 3.5%. So overall, a positive when you look at comps for Kroger. Now regarding inflation, that hot button topic everyone seems to be talking about, Kroger is seeing a change in shopping habits. And as we alluded to with produce sales, they're seeing evidence of customers cooking at home more often once again. So you saw a wave maybe of customers returning to restaurants. Now with some of that pricing pressure, now with wage inflation as well, you're seeing some of those customers of Kroger return to not only shopping in store for these products, but prepping food at home more often. And this is borne out both by sales numbers and in their discussions with their biggest customers. However, they caution that customers aren't necessarily all reacting in the same way to the current environment. Some households have been affected in different ways. So they said, basically, you can't look at this and saying, well, everyone is trading down because they're cost conscious because they have been seeing business flow to their premium private label products. Murray's cheese sales, probably chief among them, those have remained robust and their upscale private selection brand also continues to draw customer attention and improving sales year over year. But at the same time, you have kind of a barbell effect because the low end private labels have seen a similar boost. Certain households actively currently very budget conscious and one of the reasons that Kroger saw digital coupon downloads increase by 11% during the quarter as well, which is important for Kroger because that's one of the ways they can drive non-traditional revenue is by driving traffic to the app. So the more coupon downloads you've got in that digital platform, the more that they can turn that into residual income later on down the line. Supply chain for Kroger, also an issue. It was noted insofar as gas prices are concerned, definitely headwinds exist for Kroger and diesel fuel costs. I don't think anyone would be surprised at that. But some of these headwinds have been mitigated internally by cost controls because Kroger owns a lot of their own fleet. And so as a result, they aren't having to bid out work with third parties. This has resulted in Kroger being able to 
keep costs down somewhat, even though you do have spikes in fuel prices. Payroll-wise, they expect fleet payroll, but also in-store wages to continue to increase throughout the course of the year. And part of this is due to cost of living increases for retained employees. And there's good news here for Kroger on the staff front. And something we haven't talked a lot about during the course of the last two years is good news on the staff front for any retailer. But Kroger actually saw an increase in both hiring and retention after the Omicron wave. The retention numbers, that's the big thing for Kroger and part of the reason why they do see wages increasing because they're seeing the average life of an associate with the company increase. They're also seeing a larger number of what they call boomerangs, which are employees that have left for other work and are now returning either as a result of the pay, the benefits, or the workplace culture at Kroger. And of course, management is going to talk quite a bit about the culture as they did on this call being important. But it's also showing us that, hey, this retail work, at least Kroger's creating an atmosphere where when associates leave, they don't completely close the door on coming back. And I think that's an overall positive for Kroger when you see these boomerang type employees or associates returning to the fold. certainly means you're doing something right in terms of organizational competency, whether that's you're paying them more, they get better benefits, or it's that culture that leadership loves to focus on. Not all of the stories coming out of the earnings call focused on inflation for Kroger. There were actually some signs that consumer spending might not be as bad off as you see indicated in the media at large. For example, Valentine's Day and Mother's Day during this first quarter became the highest and second highest single days, respectively, for floral sales in Kroger's history. Now, in theory, these type of expenses, floral expenses during these holidays, are a little bit more discretionary for households. Now, I'm not talking about not buying flowers altogether for Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, but maybe trading down a little bit if you're watching the pocketbook. But the sales seem to be robust, also added to Kroger's expanding fresh sales as floral is in Kroger's fresh category. And we should remember here that Kroger is the most robust floral retailer in the U.S. Sales for both of these holidays in general were up double digits. And so that's hardly indicative of any potential curtailing in household spend. And certainly when you look at 2008 and 2009, the atmospheres there, we saw a significant pullback in some of these type of holidays in terms of spending. And you're not seeing that right now. So certainly kind of adds to what Kroger was talking about in terms of all households being affected quite differently when it comes to the current inflationary environment. It was also noted on the call that more customers shopped in-store in the first quarter. There are a number of different factors here as well. Again, you have the waning of some of the pandemic numbers, even though some of the numbers that you see out there certainly indicate that the number of COVID cases continues to be comparatively large in certain areas. It seems like more people are at least we're comfortable going back to brick and mortar in grocery. And we've also talked about the fact that it seems like people's perception of online grocery sales has been slipping just a little bit over the course of the last year. But what was interesting is for Kroger, this brick and mortar traffic was robust enough to send them on the search for technology to increase front end throughput and also reduce customer wait times in other areas in the store. For example, 
in the deli section or in the meat section. On another note, Kroger is seeing good retention numbers for their trial boost membership platform. This has more to do with those digital sales and the delivery sales. Members of the boost platform can get unlimited free delivery on orders of $35 or more. They also get double fuel points on purchases, but they've seen such good retention numbers with that program that they are now rolling it out nationwide over the next few weeks. It had been in a trial stage in a handful of different markets throughout the U.S. up to this point. So overall, you are seeing some increased retention as far as that delivery proposition is concerned, but it seems like customers more and more flocking back to those Kroger physical stores. And so Kroger is having to adjust to that both with in-store technology and ensuring associates are deployed in a correct manner. They actually have a newer scheduling platform. They brought in a third party to assist in terms of associate scheduling. And by the way, they also credited that as helping employee retention and matters of employee retention. The scheduling is a little bit more predictable and puts it a little bit more in the hands of the associates than it was previous to the technology adoption. Finally, Kroger was able to keep up with their recent brisk pace of private label product rollouts. They launched 239 new products during the quarter. Sounds very familiar as Albertsons always parades their numbers in terms of private label products that were launched during any given quarter. Many of these for Kroger, we're spring or summer seasonal oriented as they begin to roll out a larger rotation of seasonal products in their private label categories. And these rollouts were also concurrent with their end-to-end -end fresh produce initiative. They credited that for driving produce sales, but in all honesty, again, the customer-facing aspects of this program aren't immediately notable to a lot of shoppers. So this may be optimistic attribution there. So in all, I think what you're looking at with Kroger is an atmosphere where customers continue to open their wallets, their pocketbooks, their purses, etc. At grocery stores, you see spend increasing, maybe not as much as inflation, but it certainly does seem that people setting aside money for groceries more than any other category currently. And you're also seeing as much as this negative talk floats about regarding inflation and regarding households being pressured, Again, you're seeing trading up in certain circumstances. This business that Kroger's been doing with Murray's Cheese of late is a great example of that. Also, the Valentine's Day and Mother's Day shopping, a great example of that as well. So a couple of things to keep in mind, and I think a few things to be optimistic about if you're looking at the retail landscape in general. Now, coming up after this break, we will be joined by Edward Corey, once again, Managing Director of RCS. We'll talk about the dynamics of retail leasing in this current climate. And yes, we'll talk about inflation too, both as it pertains to maintenance for these retail stores and as it pertains to ongoing negotiations as far as who pays for taxes and insurance. All that right after this. BAMS! Are you accepting credit cards in your business? Of course you are. And if you're not, and you're a retailer, then you definitely should be. But did you know that Stripe is not your only or best option for payment processing? You can get paid well with BAMS. BAMS is a national payment solution provider with automated next day deposits 
and major savings when compared directly to Stripe, PayPal, and Square. BAMS provides competitive pricing and deposits directly into your bank account in as little as 12 hours. Visit BAMS.com slash PayWell, it's P-A-Y-W-E-L-L, for a limited time and get a $50 Visa gift card after completing your rate analysis to see how much you can save. Visit BAMS.com slash PayWell today to start saving. And as always, the link is in our show notes. In the first installments of our ICSC interview series, we've discussed a bit about how some markets go about attracting retailers to their area. But the leasing process is sometimes more complex than people might think. We've heard a lot about how landlords and retailers have become partners a little bit post-COVID. But what does that look like in practice when it comes to negotiations, especially when a retailer has been in a spot for some time? Here to discuss in and outs of retail leases and negotiations is Edward Corey, Managing Director at RCS. Ed, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks, Trent. First, could you share with us a little bit about what RCS does as an organization? Sure. RCS has been in business for about 40 years. We represent retailers across the U.S. and Canada. We do everything from portfolio management which includes existing fleets, to growth and development, to restructuring. We've done distressed retailers as well, extremely healthy retailers grow and reorganize uh, their business in the U.S. And the last few years have been pretty robust in both categories. All right. So for our listeners out there that might not know a bunch about what retail leases might look like, in the current landscape, what do landlords, retailers look at as far as key points by which you might evaluate or negotiate a lease? Well, I think everybody's looking for a good commitment to the other party. So as a retailer, we're looking at the quality of the developer and our reliance upon their commitment to their own properties. We're looking for the quality of the center that they're in, the demographic match to our clients particular customer base. And then because most of these terms are 10 years or potentially longer, we're looking for a long-term horizon as we measure against our risk. I think developers are looking at creditworthy tenants. They're looking at tenants that are relevant in today's market. They're looking for people who will produce a business or for basis or just a gross basis that warrants where they're trying to take their center. Most landlords want to increase sales per square foot by bringing in new tenants. At the end of the day, they're looking to enhance their tenant mix in line with their vision for the property. So if it's a grocery store anchored center in a high income area, they're looking for tenants that will complement them. If it's a mall that's in a blue collar area, they're looking for tenants that will complement that particular type of demographic. So. Again, I think they're looking for tenants who match up with their vision for the property, taking their centers, malls, or strip, or lifestyle in the in the direction that they want to take the project. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what tenants are seeking, what landlords are seeking in terms of maybe that match. But once they find a match, once the retailer finds an appropriate shopping center, once that shopping center owner or property manager finds the tenant that's going to add to their mix, 
when it comes to negotiating the leases. Obviously, landlords are going to want high rents per square foot, but what are some things, maybe some sticking points in terms of lease negotiations currently where maybe landlords and tenants are, are looking for particular things here? Well, I think the smart retailers are looking to mitigate risk. Our clients are willing to share in the upside, but they want to be protected on the downside. So we've gone through you know, 2021 and the first quarter of 2022 were bumper crop years in terms of the business for most retailers. We had a lot of stimulus in the economy. We had a lot of pent up demand. We had a lot of limitations on how people could spend their dollars and that that tended to go into retail. So we're looking at, you know, healthy balance sheets for a lot of retailers and great trends and great comps for sales. But the retailer community doesn't believe that's going to continue, or at least they won't say it, they believe it's going to continue. And I think that's proving out as we've seen some sales come out. So retailers want to mitigate risk, they'll share in the upside that is additional. So percentage rent is becoming a bigger component of the negotiation and low or lower gross rent, of course. So as the tenant's business goes up, uh, the landlord shares in that. And as you mentioned, landlords are trying to maximize their, their rent stream. So they're looking for the highest rent per square foot. They're let, a little bit less creative on what percentage rent will mean to them. They always have to balance that against their banking relationships, the impact uh, that a gross percent lease or gross percent with a low floor could mean. So landlords have a less flexibility, I think, than retailers do in the negotiation. And then the other thing I think that's come into play is that the capital side of the equation is more important than maybe it was three years ago. So the capital side, as again, retailers try to mitigate risk, they want more capital from landlords to build their stores, that contribution. In addition, Construction costs, as we're all aware, have increased dramatically over the last two years. So what cost $100 a foot two years ago might be $140 a day. So just the basic balance sheet needs of building a store and putting together the right economic package for a retailer are vastly different than they were pre-pandemic. And if the developer understands that, then that probably makes for a more successful negotiation. Now, you make a great point in that. Obviously, construction costs have gone up, and so looking at some of those capital improvement dollars kind of up front is something that both parties are willing to negotiate on. I'm also curious, as far as common area maintenance, or as some people know it in the industry, CAM, because we've seen property management costs go up, even costs like janitorial and, and other things are going through the roof. So how much does CAM factor into the course of the negotiations, knowing that it seems like costs are rising with no end in sight? It's a huge issue, I think, for both parties because you know we've got the retailer side, you've got wage inflation, which has been real, and you're right on the developer side, they are they're experiencing the same things and have to manage both parties have to manage their budgets appropriately. I think the days of fixed increases at five percent for CAM are gone. It's gonna be a hotly negotiated item on both sides. And it's probably the bigger issues that we're gonna face in terms of sort of the small part of the deal, which you don't often think about AM and taxes going up by 8% or 9% a year, but that's quite possible given today's inflation. So that's a big issue. I think the new normal will be 5% increases on CAM and insurance. 
All right, so great insight there as far as how inflation might be impacting lease negotiations. So to this point, we've talked a little bit about maybe new leases, but I'm curious when you begin to work on behalf of a client or a retailer, when you've got leases in place across the course of their portfolio, how do you go about evaluating leases in comparison to say maybe store performance or the importance of a given location? And then also you're probably looking at leases that are written by a lot of different parties because every landlord for a while had their own lease templates. So how do you go about evaluating leases when you begin to partner with a retailer? That's a great question. I think that not only do we see a lot of different leases and landlords, we see a lot of clients and each one of them has a certain financial metric they put forward to us negotiate i think that's the baseline is that you have to establish the notion that you would stay in a flagship mall if you will or a triple a mall and lose money or not meet a particular percent of sales EBITDA, they're gone so when we look at a portfolio we try and be very smart about it say you know if our operating costs not be more than 10 percent that's our number across, you know, as an average across the board with, you know, maybe a variance of 2% to the up and 2% to the down. I think most retailers are very disciplined and are willing to close stores that aren't profitable and are willing to close stores that pay the metrics. So that's just, it's just the state of the state, I think, after going through the last couple of years. The notion that a retailer would take excessive risk, I don't see that right now. So we talk a little bit about the downside of it, maybe if a retailer is underperforming in a certain location. We'll talk a little bit about that here in a moment. But there are also circumstances, and we see with certain retailers that are out there that are looking to expand their square footprints in certain locations. Certainly, this is something we've seen with Dollar General and their pop shelf expansions. Other retailers also fitting the bill. And I'm curious what the general process is when a retailer out there maybe targets a particular location. They say, hey, this is well-performing. We actually want to expand. What might the dialogue be like with the landlord, provided that the space to expand is available? Well, I think that's everybody's watching for you know store potential. Even landlords do. So if a store is you know doing two thousand dollars a foot when a thousand dollars a foot is the average, and they come to the landlord to expand, that should be a mutually agreeable discussion. And as long as no party gets greedy, that should be something that can be put together. So that tenant says, you know, my operating costs are, you know, I have a little room in my operating spend, but I need another 25%. That should be a reasonable negotiation. An expansion of the store just financially, when it gets to CFO, is really a tough deal. That's very hard to do. My experience having represented a lot of retailers. So you know, spend costs, some costs, got an infrastructure that's in there. The capital spend is a big deal. And the retailer has to get a return on their investment as well. So it is not easy to expand the store in place or in the same shop. So you really have to have a willing partner on the landlord side to make the economics work. And then let's go back, talk about maybe an underperforming location. When you look at a retailer, they're evaluating locations. They might say, well, sales you know, per square foot or sales for this market are less than what we would desire. We've thrown everything at the wall. Nothing is stuck. When a retailer decides upon leaving a particular location, what are some considerations they have to have in the back of their mind as maybe a, an exit strategy, so to speak? Well, I think everybody's going to look at sales transfer. So if you're closing a store in a market, are the sales going to transfer to 
other stores. I think you also have to consider your internet sales. You know, how is that going to affect your online business? So that is part of the considerations. Obviously, you care about the customer that you have built, even if the built may not be as robust a population. You've got to consider them. So those are things you start to think about without getting into like the operation side of where do the employees go when you shut a store. But you know, sales transfer, your impact on the e-commerce. Do you come back and re-enter the market in a different location? Did you just pick the wrong real estate when you did the deal initially? So that's a repositioning. So those are the three big things I think they've got to consider. Ultimately, you also have acquisitions and banking arrangements that might also come into play where you can't go, you know, where you have store account thresholds. You need to be cognizant of. It's a little complex at that point. Probably not the first thing the real estate guy thinks about, but CFO and the CEO are. So you've got to manage a store fleet size. You mentioned the idea of sales transfer once you've decided upon closing a particular store in a given market. And I'm curious, you know, we've talked to this point about inflation when it comes to construction costs, inflation when it comes to common area maintenance, but also we've seen incredible spikes in gas prices recently. Has that entered into the discussion as far as retailers are concerned when they look at a map and say, well, maybe we can transfer sales to this location or this location? especially when you're closing a location in a mid-sized market or retailers maybe a bit more cognizant that people don't want to travel as much? I think they're cognizant of the impact of rising fuel costs on it. So do they get that granular? I can't really say. A lot of the sales transfer forecasting is an analog that's done by outside firms to help them figure it out. And it's still, you know, at the end of the day, a bit of a guess. So factors like, Cost of, of fuel could be a variable that, that impacts sales transfer. Definitely could be a variable. That's pretty granular, and I don't think most of our clients wouldn't think of it that way. Understood. And I'm also curious about, you mentioned re-entering a given market. Let's say a retailer maybe has moved out of a market or been out of a market for a few years. They're seeking to re-enter the market. What are some considerations amongst clients that you've worked with just in terms of re-entering the market, making sure that that real estate is correct this time around. Yeah, that's a very big deal. And you can imagine that the pain, that was a painful discussion when you close the store and then you're going to go back in. But at the end of the day, they have to look back at why they closed that store, period in time when they closed that store concerning their business, like when they had a healthy company, was their product resonating? So many stores get closed when retailers are not doing well, not just in a certain market, but maybe just generally. So the lowest performers get cut by default. As their business gets healthy and they get back to you know being successful, returning to a market that they were in before and getting you know all the partner buy-in internally, especially the finance team. Once they do that, then I think there's additional focus on not only the type of real estate, making sure it's appropriate, they're going to think back at what made them close before. What was, what was wrong about their prior location if it wasn't the product or it wasn't the team? So they're going to be very thoughtful about that. And I think the other thing, quite frankly, is re-entering a market that you closed. You know, if you're risk adverse on a, on a market you love that's new to you, you're even more risk adverse, I think, personally, I think this is what our clients would suggest re-entering a market because making the same mistake twice 
doesn't sit real well with anybody. And, I, and I, so that probably means, you know, a different economic paradigm. And the deal terms probably reflect that as well. So now I want to turn our vision towards the future. You mentioned certainly things like rent based on sales as an example of things we're seeing more of. Over the next three to five years, what do you anticipate that we'll see more of in terms of inclusion in those retailer leases? I think most of our clients, and I think this could become more pervasive, want a single gross rent that they pay. And that is versus a percent of sales. And if it's 12% is their number, if that's their threshold of pain, then I think that's what they're just going to, that's the model they're going to run with. I'm not saying that landlords are buying into it completely. Some are. And I believe that's the way of the future. And maybe it's a modified gross rent where taxes are pulled out. But for the most part, the landlords are pretty smart. They can figure out what their gross rent is and what they need and combine three numbers, taxes, can, and rent, on insurance, pull out taxes and give the retailer a, a, a round number. And so this is it versus 12% or 10 or 15 or whatever the number is. That seems to make the most sense to me for our clients. And as a former landlord, provided you're starting at the right spot, you now have upside that you probably didn't have before. I think a lot of planning in late 2021 didn't anticipate inflation to be anything but transitory. I don't believe they anticipated a, a foreign war that's having dramatic impact on, uh, on the cost of petroleum to food supplies, exacerbating inflation. And I don't think they had a sense that Shanghai or, or China would have another round of lockdowns due to COVID. So all those substantial changes you know, what our clients are doing is they're readdressing the decisions they made last year and they're, they're just double checking to make sure they're still comfortable with them. Now, as you, this has been well reported, there are a lot of retailers who are reducing their open to buy a new store plan for 2022 and either pushing it into 2023 or not commenting, just reducing the size of their new store plan and probably having an even more rigid set of criteria as they manage to, you know, potential soft landing of our inflation or a soft or maybe a slight recession going into 2023. So it's, it's definitely on a lot of our clients' minds as to what the rest of this year is going to feel like. And, and some of them have pulled back on their aggressive nature. Well, some great insight about a topic we absolutely love to discuss on the show. Once again, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Trent. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Ed for joining us. It's always a fascinating conversation to have regarding the relationship between tenants and landlords. Something we heard over and over again at ICSC was the fact that this relationship between tenants and landlords has become more of a partnership than it has been an adversarial relationship after COVID. So anxious to see that continue. And right on cue, our looking ahead story has to do with a retailer that 
is negotiating these leases because they are opening some of these new locations. And it's funny because Ed kind of closed by talking about how in this inflationary environment, you might see retailers pull back a little bit or hold more stringent some of their ideals as it pertains to opening new locations. Well, Grocery Outlet has just opened up their first location in Maryland. This is part of their mid-Atlantic expansion. They started on the eastern side of the country in Pennsylvania, have since expanded to New Jersey, and now have opened up their first store, this in Hagerstown, Maryland. Now, the reason I'm looking ahead to this is not only having to do with those lease negotiations that Grocery Outlet is no doubt taking on, but the fact that they are scheduled to open 28 net new stores during the course of this year. And we talked in the first segment about how certain customers, certain households becoming more and more cost conscious, more price sensitive. This sets up very well for Grocery Outlet to have a successful 2022, at least in comparison with other retailers. So the reason I'm looking ahead is Grocery Outlet, their expansion plans have been pretty reasonable. Usually every year opening anywhere between 20 to 40 new stores. So growing their operations by about 5 to 8% every year. The reason I'm looking ahead here is do they begin to ramp that up if the current environment were to persist? Ultimately, you see a chain here that if you've listened to the show at all, Leighton and I are big fans of Grocery Outlet. Their overall concept is is well done. It's well executed. They offer the routine goods, and it's kind of like what Big Lots was attempting to do in food and consumables, only with a larger, fresh selection. And honestly, I think they do it a little bit better at a little bit better price points. Unlike the likes of Ollie's Bargain Outlet, they have those perishable goods, and so they're able to attract customers from a wide variety of households, not just the most cost-conscious, but Is Grocery Outlet currently looking at the landscape and saying, hey, there is room for growth here, just like what we've seen in the past with Aldi during times of maybe recessionary or inflationary impacts. We've seen them really come out of those circumstances and grow. Is this the same type of situation for Grocery Outlet? And will we see them expand beyond their West Coast and Mid-Atlantic holdings? Also, how will they fare in the Mid-Atlantic? They fared very well in Pennsylvania for a while, but over the next couple of quarters, we'll get an idea as to how these New Jersey and Maryland stores are performing. They have around 10 stores planned, new stores, I should mention, for this particular area of the country, so we'll get a nice view into that. And at what point, if any, do they decide to attack the middle of the country, some markets in the middle of the country, are wide open as far as the potential for an off-price grocery retailer that carries a lot of name brands, which is a differentiator for Grocery Outlet when you compare them to the likes of maybe Save-A-Lot or Aldi or Lidl. You have those name brands, a lot of those CPGs that some customers are looking for, even if they're looking for them at a discounted price. So a lot to look for there at Grocery Outlet over the next several years, and I'm anxious to see how this mid-Atlantic expansion continues for the company. Well, that'll do it for us here this week on the Retail Focus podcast. Thanks to Leighton helping out behind the scenes, and a big thanks to BAMS as well for sponsoring this week's episode. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next time.
been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.